Another Wednesday. Today we're going to be hearing an interview from Heather Tallheimer interviewing Andrew Love. You're going to hear him talk about what it's like to go to comedy school, becoming a serial traveler, a pastor, and what's the role of comedy and laughter in his life and what he sees for comedy in the world. I think it's a great interview. Enjoy. Hi, I'm here today with Andrew Love. Andrew, we've known each other, what, over 10 years? And you're such an interesting person to me because you pack so much into your life. I know you're a comedian and you're one of the funniest people I know. I just love hearing your comedy. But also you've been a pastor. And actually, that's where I first met you in New York City. I don't know, like 10 years ago or something. You're also working with a nonprofit, High Noon, and you're a serial traveler going all over the world right now. You live together with your wife and three boys in Bali. And whenever I see photographs of you online, I'm like, I want to live there. Your life has been such an incredible journey. And we're just honored to be able to interview you today and chat with you, not really interview, just talk with you and find out what's up for you and what's going on in your life. And with that little introduction, I was just wondering if I've left anything out you'd like to tell us about yourself and your life and who you are. Well, it's funny timing because there's a rainstorm that just started as soon as you introduced me. Um, (laughs) No, everything sounded good. My dad also had a million careers in his lifetime. And he's still looking for stuff that he's 73 and he's still looking to get his finger in this and that. And, you know, I would like to not do that. <laughs> I would like to like, you know, there's like a fine line between exploring and wandering. And so I don't want to wander too far away from what I'm supposed to be doing. But I have done quite a bit. But part of it is just looking to be real with myself. What should I be doing? And it's not an easy question to answer for me. Some people are like, oh, I'm an accountant. And I, I, I can't say that. I, I'm not one thing. So I don't want to be a dabbler, but I don't want to just be confined to one thing either. I'm somewhere in the between all that. <laughs> That's cool. I know comedy is very important to you. And it's probably something that has been a thread throughout your life. And so I'm just wondering, what is comedy for you? What attracts you to comedy? Why are you a comedian? You actually went to school for comedy, right? Like it's like, it's a, it's a field of study for you. Like it's a, it's a real, <laughs> I mean, legitimate, it people actually go. There's one school in the entire world that gives you like a degree for comedy. And it opened, the school opened the year that I was going into college. So it like, it was, it was destiny. And I had the worst audition ever, but they didn't have that many people applying because it was a new program. So I slid right in there and I had a little bit of time to kind of get my legs, my sea legs. But <laughs> What um, do you do in comedy school? You just sit around telling jokes? Like, what so, is comedy school? Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, in stand-up class, yeah. It was the weirdest thing because it was in a legitimate college. But since we were like, you can imagine the class clowns, this is back in Canada, from around Canada going to one school in the same class is like, there's nowhere that they could put us. We would destroy physically every room that we were in. And they eventually relegated us to this trailer outside of the actual (laughs) school. And, you know, we trashed that place. This one guy for a sketch, he, he climbed up into the ceiling and he fell through the ceiling and destroyed it. 
And at some point, they just the school hated us so much that they stopped cleaning up the room. And somebody tested it by cutting their fingernails, putting it in the carpet. And those fingernails were there for like five months. So it was, it was a weird scenario. But then, so we were the first year to go through it. And it's been going on for the past, I mean, that was 20 years ago or something insane like that. And uh, they've been going on ever since. And I heard they moved to an official building now on another campus in the same school that used to be an insane asylum. So they've upgraded, I guess. We made where we were an insane asylum, but they moved to an official insane asylum. (laughs) To answer your question, like, I I mean, so I started clearly, there's like a fine line where I was just like a little turtle hidden in his shell too afraid to say anything to anybody, very shy kid, to, you know, my parents struggling at home, going through this whole divorce thing, this prolonged, you know, pain and suffering in our our house, and just me needing attention, needing validation so desperately. And I wasn't at all (laughs) good at garnering attention. And when I did have attention, I didn't know what to do with it. So it was the most awkward phase of like needing attention, but not knowing what the hell to do with it. So from sixth grade up until high school, it was just like I was swinging for the fences, but I couldn't even like lift up the bat. And it was really awkward and embarrassing for everybody. But then in high school, I really kind of crafted the art of making people laugh. But in the beginning, it was at the expense of the teacher. So I was always kicked out of all my classes. I failed. So back, back when I was in high school, you could fail a class. And they just, in, in the first two years of high school, they just like let you go. Just let you keep going, you know. I remember in science class, <laughs> science class freshman year, I had a 28%. <laughs> I had a 28% in that class. That's like barely, like a corpse could have done better, probably. Just you have don't to get work in trouble. <laughs> you have to work yeah, hard. To was, get 28%. Uh, yeah, just like for context, I remember clearly hearing from a teacher. They sat me down and they said, Andrew, in all my years of teaching, I've never been at a staff meeting where every single teacher had something negative to say about some kid, even teachers that didn't even have you in their class. Like, what the hell are you doing with your life? You know? so, <laughs> the first few years of high school, I was just like, I, I knew that I was invincible because the way, I don't know what schools are like. I'm imagining they're even worse. But when I was in high school, I was testing the waters. How far can I go? And without getting kicked out of school, like I didn't murder anybody. I didn't do anything crazy, but I was really like a menace to everybody else's higher learning. And I just realized that nobody could do anything. And that just made me a real problem. I was a pain in many teachers, but... But then towards the end of high school, I really turned it around and I made it. I realized that I don't want to hurt anybody. You know, I think I maybe healed a little bit and I just realized that I don't want to hurt anybody. So I included the teachers as well. And it kind of ended more peacefully where the students and the teachers were all laughing. And even like classic 80s, you know, frat house movie. My principal knew my name. He knew everything about me. He hated me. His name was Mr. Lee. And I was always in his office. And he was like such a, such a straight, narrow guy. You know, like such he would always have the perfect hair and all that. And I was just a disaster. And he, <laughs> and, But by the last year of high school, we were buddies. Like we were straight pals. And 
I love the guy. And I, I just feel like I learned this lesson that comedy, if somebody's losing, then it's not real. It's not good comedy. Nobody should lose, you know? Uh, everybody should win. It should be a win-win proposition. Mm-hmm. So I kind of learned a little bit more about that in high school. And then, yeah, I went to college for it, but that was a traumatic, you know, uh, being around comedians. I, the more that I hung out with comedians, the less that I wanted to hang out with comedians. And so I ended up leaving comedy mostly because I couldn't hang out in the clubs anymore. I was just getting so depressed in the green rooms before the show or whatever. These guys are just, you know, like a lot of artists, the, most, most artists really do it for some sort of self-glorification or recognition, right? But when you see a true artist, there's somebody that just wants to let something pass through them. And I didn't see so much of that in the comedy world. Maybe I was in the stand-up world. It's really, it was really intensely narcissistic and horrible. Sketch comedy was a little bit better. And then improv comedy, like the heart of improv is you have to give in order to be a good improviser. So it actually was like a much better community. And that's actually where I ended up finding my closest friends in the improv world. And actually the guy that married my sister was, we used to do comedy together and she would come to see me and then they ended up getting married. And nobody, neither one of them, first of all, asked me if it was cool. And neither one of them thanked me, thanked me at all. They just kind of got married and said, peace. So anyway, so, that was, that, that was, I gave you like the entire history of my life in 20 seconds. That's awesome. Comedy has been so important to you. What function do you see comedy plays in the world? What could it be? I'm interested. I heard from you what comedy wasn't for you or isn't, yeah. but I'm wondering what mm-hmm. could it be in your opinion? Yeah. So the most beautiful thing that any art could be is when the artist so there's two factors and I've been really hot on, on thinking about this a lot because it applies mm-hmm. to music, anything. It's learning the technical craft is really important. And it's like with music, if piano, guitar, whatever, you do the scales, you put in the time so that your hands do exactly what your mind wants them to do at the exact precise time and location that you want them. And with comedy, it's like really learning to be present to what needs to have happen in that room. And there's a spiritual element to that as well, which I learned much later in my life. So learning the technical craft, but then there's the inspirational element. And that's when you let go of the fear of, especially when you're doing live comedy, if you're thinking about yourself, you're automatically, you're done. But when you're just kind of present to the people and you look at them and you're trying to give them the best of yourself and you're also connected to something greater than yourself, some, some inspiration, and you have the technical ability to transmute the idea into a gift to a somebody or a bunch of people, then it magic happens. Just straight yeah. magic happens. And so it's like in its purest form, the more that you've put in your time with the technical craft, you know? So like the Beatles are a great example because... They're known for, they spent so much time together as a band. Just, you know, they would go do like every night they would play something like 10 to 12 hours straight sets in these clubs in like uh, the red light district, I think in Holland or something, just like every night grinding. And they became so tight that when a song came to them, they could just get it out. But usually most people have fears or they're self-conscious or whatever that kind of prevents the inspiration to really come out in its purest form. For me with comedy, I put in the time so I don't care what I look like or sound like anymore, especially when I'm doing it, when I'm, when I'm doing a lot of shows and you can just kind of be present. 
being in the right state to be inspired too, like really taking care of yourself. And if, if you're really like in a bad place, it's hard to get that stuff out. But yeah, that combo of like inspiration into some sort of craft. The inspiration is above and then the audience is in front of you and you're merely just a transmuting device. It's not about you. The mm-hmm. second it becomes about you, it becomes a losing transaction in any art, in my opinion. Because then it's about ego and feeding somebody. And then it's just like, people might like it, you know, like they might listen to a Jay-Z song and bob their head, but their soul isn't being, it's not being stirred in the way that somebody is giving something. Like if you're really connected to God, to like a higher power and you're just downloading that and putting it into your art. And when people pick up on that, it like, it changes their life. It changes the trajectory of their, their soul, their spirit. And that's, that's why people still go to live shows, in my opinion. Because mm-hmm. you're thinking technology is getting really good, but technology cannot capture that to its fullest extent. When you're at a, an art show or a comedy show or a, even a jazz or whatever, it's like when that magic happens, there's no other feeling like it. I know some atheists even that um, they cry. <laughs> I have a relative who's like, she always cries at concerts. She's like, because it's just the music is so beautiful. I was like, well, you don't see that there's like something else happening here. It's just like just <laughs> notes flying in the air and just hitting you and reverberating. And anyway, that's that's the magic. And that's in terms of comedy, it's like somebody brought up, I think you were there, David. Uh, we were at an event. I was emceeing an event and like mm. I just saw the opportunity and I didn't think about anything. I just kind of went with it and I kind of allowed for funny to happen. And it wasn't even about me, but it just like this kinetic energy flew through the room. People forgot time and space. They just ceased to exist. And we all got caught up in the energy of funny. And again, it wasn't about me or that person or whatever. It was just, remember, there's a fan. This guy was singing a song. He was singing this song in such a high falsetto voice. It was so epic. But it was just kind of like it was a long song. So people got, but I just saw this. I saw a picture where imagine he had wind blowing in his hair and then there happened to be a fan right there. And so he finished the song. I was like, don't move. And I just, and everybody was so confused. And I got the fan and I put it on him. And then he sang the last part of the song, like the crescendo with this hair blowing in the wind. And everyone was like, ah! and people were like screaming, losing control. And again, it wasn't because I was a genius. It was like, I saw the opportunity. And I didn't give a crap if it worked or not. I was just like, this has to happen. And I just ran with it. And it's like that comparable. I think jazz music does this a lot because they'll just go off on some riff and you don't know if they're ever going to bring it back because they're like really going off. But they technically, if they technically have the ability, they go off on the edge and it's so exciting because you're like, they're almost chaotic in their sound, but they bring it back. And sometimes at the exact same note, and it gives you this sense of relief, like, wow, the universe is going to be okay, you know? Because it's like <laughs> harmony came out of all these pieces, bits and pieces. And the same thing can happen with comedy. You don't know where's the person leading us. And when they take you there, it's just like, it's amazing. So I think comedy and movies have that ability. If you forget about yourself and you just go on this quest with somebody, it's like the most joyful thing because for a moment you stopped worrying about your life and you even stopped thinking about yourself. You just were, you were that person for a bit. You were wherever they took you. And if they were a good guide and took you to a happy place, then, then they've just 
giving you a great benefit, right? Um, but I feel like a lot of comedians, they don't take you to a good place. They take you like, I find most comedians use their audience as a therapist. And I think it's, it's actually a dysfunctional relationship in most cases because they're just giving you their garbage, you know, their unprocessed garbage that everybody's kind of laughing. But if you actually think about what did that person just say? Did they just say they hate themselves? <laughs> it's kind of, right. kind of depressing, right? We still celebrate Nirvana to this day, like the greatest band in history. It's like, didn't that guy hate life? You know, he was complaining in all the songs. How do we feel about that? You know? So anyway, I'm ranting, but I think, yeah, if the artist does their work and does their internal work and is coming from a good place of giving and they've done their work to also make sure that they're technically sound there, they have Mm. abilities, then they can really... It won't happen every time, but they can create magic, you know, more often than not. So that's what comedy could be. And it's what it is sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, you know, comedy is so important to you. And Mm -hmm. I experienced that in your personality because you're always being funny. But do you have a dream about comedy? You know, there are some people who write, they go like, I want to write the world's greatest novel. How does that show up for you in comedy? Yeah, I just want to create when I was like, I went to Hollywood, that's, you know, my life really transformed around that time. I was doing comedy, but I'd never fit into any niche mm-hmm. because I was just really trying to, I didn't want to. It was a real problem because especially when you, when you go to auditions or whatever, people need a certain character. They're like, okay, we need the nerdy guy. We need this guy. And like by design at an early age, I was, try, I was always trying to be different. And then I realized I was just like really, you know, attention hungry. But now I've realized that I'm just, I'm comfortable being myself, right? So when I was, when I was in Hollywood uh, for a bit, I just really couldn't kind of make things click because I wasn't willing to fit into that kind of Mm. boxed in caricature of a person, you know? I, to be honest, totally forgot what the question was. But I brought it back there for a reason. If you tell me the question, I will bring you back. (laughs) No, no, it's not you. You know that whole thing that I was talking about? If the comedian does his job, he'll bring you back to a happy place. I got lost in the weeds there. I don't know where the hell I am. What's your question? Well, my question was really about, you know, what's your vision for how you want to use comedy in your life? I see that you're working with this nonprofit and doing amazing work through that. Maybe you can speak to that. You know, where do you see comedy fitting in or do you have like a vision of how you might use comedy? Because I'm hearing you see comedy a little bit different from how some other people see comedy. So how do you want to use comedy? Yeah. Okay. So... To bring it back from wherever the hell I was taking that. <laughs> it's, I was enjoying uh, it. <laughs> it's a matter of like, what, what is my motivation, right? So that's something mm-hmm. that's massively transformed in the time that I've known you. Mm-hmm. I gave up comedy officially. I just gave it up and I said, this is making me a worse person because when it, it was all about me. And so that means that when times were good, I was very arrogant and I was totally judging everybody else as being beneath me. And when I had a terrible show, I felt like a piece of garbage, you know, because it was all about me. Flipping that around and turning it into something about other people is very healthy, but it also makes it a craft that's for other people. 
10 years ago, I just really went on a spiritual quest to, okay, fine, screw this. I'm not going to do any comedy ever again until I feel like God wants me to, until I feel like it's, it's needed of me instead of me forcing it on, on the world. And then more and more people just started asking me to do it. And that's been my, for the past 10 years, I, I mostly just like now for nonprofit, I use comedy to talk about very difficult stuff, right? Pornography, addiction, you know, like isolation, depression. How do you make that stuff funny? That's not easy, right? Mm. <laughs> Especially talking about other people's stuff instead of just yeah. laughing at yourself to be inclusive and all that is... So I just, for the past little bit, I've been using comedy to pepper difficult messages like sugar to make the medicine go down kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, to quote a wise lady, a wise nanny, <laughs> I Mrs. Poppins. Uh, but I think moving forward, like I, it's eclipsing me. It's this thing that haunts me that I just see the state of the world, but I also see the state of media, especially. I've always felt drawn to being a part of media because it had such a massive influence on my life, a negative influence on my life. And I, I want to so be a part of that conversation. I really feel the past few years, like I'm the kid on the bench being like, coach, put me in, put me in coach. I'm ready. I swear to God, I'm ready. I swear to God, I've been doing practices when nobody was looking, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And coach is not even looking at me. He doesn't even hear me. He's like, you know, that's what I've been like with, with God, with the universe. And be like, I swear, I just want to use this for a good purpose. And I, and I keep on, you know, putting my name out there, just doing stuff, but it doesn't, it hasn't been connecting. So mm. it's either wrong time, but it's, it's, it's like definitely my calling, you know, that mm-hmm. I get into my flow state. I don't think about anything when I'm doing this kind of stuff, talking to you guys, like, Mm -hmm. and when there's a real good reason for it to happen, then really good stuff happens. Like really connection, people get inspiration ideas. We can laugh in a way that we don't normally, which is a massive release. It's a huge way to stave off, you know, depression and all sorts of stuff. So I really want to use it, but I just don't know, you know, I've been using it as a, as a, as a garnish to what my job has been mm-hmm. instead of the focus of what I do. And I feel the need to transition from just an additive to my life to the focus of my life because I think that needs to happen. I honestly feel like I could really, really make a huge difference if I do it, but I just don't know how to craft it. So it's been something that's been, you know, definitely haunt, haunting me because mm-hmm. it's there. It right. really is. Like I was talking about this the other day. It just mm-hmm. feels like my destiny is just staring at me, like sitting, like I'm here looking at you guys. We're right. We're on Zoom and it's easy to talk to you because we're face to face. But imagine somebody's right next to you and just staring at you. Just they don't take, they don't even blink and you can just feel it. Like that's what my destiny feels like. It's just staring at me waiting for me to figure it out. And it's like giving me all these obvious hints that I just can't figure out. (laughs) Um, But I know that it's like, I've gone through this quest of like, uh, I don't know, squeezing my my soul dry of ego. And that doesn't mean that I I don't have issues now and then and like judging myself and other people, but I can get past it pretty quickly to figure, okay, what's the point? Why are we doing it? Okay. Mm -hmm. And even recently, uh, I don't know, have you guys read the book, The Go-Giver? No, tell us about it. Read in a decade. I yeah, it's in story form. It's like lessons on how to format your business and your life in general based on five laws. 
And it's all about giving. Basically, the more that you stop thinking about yourself, the more that you get. Because the more that you focus on other people and get really good at giving them what they need better than anybody else, you're going to get more money, more whatever, 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 whatever. And I feel like that's what I've been working on so much for the past while. Um, but it, it had the, it kind of hasn't, hasn't lined up yet. So I'm, I'm yeah. waiting for that. Because when I first met you, like there's a lot of people that had their eye on me as like, wow, this kid's really enthusiastic. How can we use him for this and that? And I, and, um, I've been yearning for a mentor who could really see my potential since the beginning. Like I moved to LA because I had one comedian. He's the funniest guy ever. He died a few years ago. He's one of my best friends. He saved my physical life. Actually, when I had appendicitis, he took me to the best hospital in all of America. And it like, it was like in the next, I almost died. He saved my life and I'll never forget him. But he was the first person to believe in me. He said, yeah, you're the, one of the funniest people I've ever seen. And uh, I, one person, I was like, all right, I'm going to buy a plane ticket. Uh, I just like moved out to LA. <laughs> totally didn't have a visa. I was coming from Canada. I was just like, I'll figure it out. I'm gone. You know, I just needed one person to believe in me, you know, because mm. a lot of people really appreciated me from a distance, but they didn't know what the hell to do with me because I'm so different from what most people expect. You know, I'm kind of a contradiction. I, I don't look my age. Some days I look way older. Some days I look way younger, but I definitely don't look my age. <laughs> People can't, when I speak, they're like, where are you from? You know, they don't know which country I'm from. <laughs> the other day I was, I was in a coffee shop here in Bali and the guy's like, where are you from? I was like, oh, I live in America. He's like, no, before that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you're not, you weren't born in America. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? People are very confused by me. Anyway, I, I just, I, um, what I'm saying is I don't know exactly uh, how to use the stuff that all this history of, I put in definitely my 10,000 hours in terms of either on stage or writing or being in front of people. It's not clear how to use it. And I definitely don't have anybody being like, you know, I, you know, let me, let me, you know, put my money on you. So I've always had to just put money on myself and bet on myself. And I'm just going to keep on doing that until something else pans out. I know God, I, in my opinion, like this is a very, there's a lot of potential in the world, but there's also a lot of pain in this world. And I think what will help us move from a place of pain to a place of potential is laughing um, in many ways objectifies things that seem big and makes them seem small if you can laugh at them, right? Right. But when you're sick, when you've been diagnosed with some horrible disease, you're not laughing, right? Mm -hmm. But the more dominion you take over it, you can laugh at it and you belittle it and you say, I'm bigger than you. I'm better than, you know, like this kind of thing. So not making people smaller, but making things and situations seem smaller and empowering people through laughing at things, <laughs> right? cool. which is usually yeah. the opposite of comedy. Right. I'm working on it. I, I have no idea how this is going to manifest or what the future holds, but I'm open. I'm just, I'm always pushing, but I'm also, I'll take that mm-hmm. nine steps of pushing. And then on the 10th step, I'll just be like, all right, anything, anything? No, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll be watching you, Andrew, for sure. Um, yeah. now, I know you're in Bali right now. What are you doing in mm. Bali? Tell us about that. So, well, I travel a lot. So I work from my computer presently, or I travel for to speak. And so I'm traveling for work sometimes while my family travels. But basically, I got married to a Mongolian who are, they're nomadic people. <laughs> and so... <laughs> 
That works. That's another thing. Is like, <laughs> yeah, it, it really works. And we don't really belong. We've been moving around looking for a home, to be honest. Like, where do we fit in? And we haven't really ever felt like we fit in in any one place. So, you know, we're always looking. We're here in Bali and we're like, hey, maybe we could buy a place. I'm like, you know, after being here for a few months, we're like, no, probably not. But we've been to last year, I was in. I was in like 28 countries last year and some of that for work, some of it for pleasure, but our family, we're just trying to be as honest as possible about what needs to happen right now and try to have no limitations. So sometimes we need to go to her home, right? She needed, she had some stuff going on internally and she needed to go back to her home Mm because the way that they do things in Mongolia is vastly different than anywhere else in the world, especially than the West. So we went to Mongolia mm. and we stayed there. My sons and my wife stayed there for like four months. I stayed there for like five weeks. But we're just on this quest to like figure out where we fit in. And in this time, I just feel like it's so important to stay acutely attuned to what needs to happen right now and how can you contribute to that because it's changing. As you can tell, like right. we came to Bali for plan was, you know, a couple of weeks and it's been three months. <laughs> And there's no planes going in or out of this country right now. So we're going to be here for at least another month or three or four. Right. But it's so cool because we've been so limber along the way about how we approach life that we're, we're open to learning. And that just allows us to be flexible. Like It seems like the, this coronavirus is making the entire world just behave more like our family. <laughs> like yeah. they're homeschooling, they work from home. They, you know, it's cool. I hear in your conversation, lots of things going on in your life. And like you said, you know, we went to 28 countries. We lived here, we lived there. And lots of energy around the different types of work you do. And I'm just wondering what grounds you as a person? Because I think, you know, creative people tend to be, you know, you, you go off here and you do that and there's this high. And, but what grounds you in your life? Well, definitely family. I think people have got it backwards, especially in this day and age with pursuing fame and all that as the, as the main area of their life. But just in general, like I would, what is more important, you know, inventing the next great iPhone or your family? To me, it's family every time because the more families that we have that are stable, it's the next generation that will be in such a good place to have the mental bandwidth and the, and the you know emotional bandwidth and the spiritual bandwidth to create something that is far greater than us, mm. right? But that only happens if the soil is really well taken care of. And so what grounds me is just really having kids that let me know how I'm doing. I had to really lie down with one of my sons today upstairs. In the, uh, oh, there's a giant gecko talking. Sorry. <laughs> Can you hear that? I did. I, I heard something. <laughs> so loud. Uh, I just realized, you know, there's something slightly off and it's just because I've been intensely learning some new skills this week and I wasn't, I wasn't able to really focus on him and he started to go off and mm. I could see that in him. And so I had to pull back on all the stuff that I was learning to make sure that I was not running ahead of my family. Cause in, in my opinion, it's like if you sprint ahead, but then your family's behind, then did you win? No, I don't think so. So it's that balance between I have my own personal desires, but I'm not willing to sacrifice my family for that. Mm-hmm. And so they're literally keep me grounded because they sometimes trip me or push me off the bed or whatever. So, mm-hmm. 
cool. Mm. Mm. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm curious about some of the moments you've had in your life and what are some of the, um, not funniest, but what are some of the most memorable moments you have around the world of comedy and what you've been creating for people and just around laughter when you think of your craft and you think of your art and being who you are? It doesn't necessarily have to be on stage, but some of the moments that are really precious to you. Laughter is, you know, definitely those moments where um, transcendence, like moments of transcendence where I'm like out of my mind and I'm not me and stuff happens through me, you know. There's this one underground comedy show back in Toronto where actually a lot of people that like we were, I was doing comedy with at that time are actually really famous right now. And uh, I remember one night it was like, I don't know why, but it was so packed. There are people on the ground. There's standing, people were like wedged in like this and sweating. It was so hot in there back in the day when you could smoke in comedy clubs and it was really dingy and it like really felt like underground. And we were destroying, I was a part of, of a group with three guys and we had just been on this hot streak. One of the guys is actually my, my sister's husband. I wanted to say that right. I almost said my wife's sister. Uh, anyway, so my sister's husband, we were just so hot. And I just remember at one point I said something. I don't even know what I said. Even when I was saying it, I didn't know what I was saying, but it was like an electric current went through the room and people were like, yes. <laughs> pounding, pounding the tables, just dying and sweating and laughing. And it was like that we became this one giant sweaty orb of laughter and joy. And, uh, at that time, it was like, it was me because I'm so funny. But, you know, unraveling that, it was just comedy moved through me at that moment because I transcended myself. So stuff like that is the why people become addicted to doing comedy, you know, mm-hmm. to be honest. Some people really do because they need that hit. It's a, it's a massive hit of dopamine for everybody to stare at you and worship you. <laughs> and that's basically what they're doing at the, in that moment. When you're doing well, they're worshiping you in a sense <laughs> if you take it for yourself if you think I'm great. Hmm. Wow. But conversely, let me just say that my very first time doing stand-up, I was like, I'm not even going to rehearse anything. I'm just going to go up and riff. And I destroyed and people were dying laughing. And Mm -hmm. I became extremely overconfident. And so then the next gig, I was like, yeah, I I got the formula for success, obviously. And it was much higher stakes. It was a corporate gig in front of hundreds of people. And I went up there and I systematically died, like <laughs> just <laughs> died the most horrible, gruesome death. And I remember just people looking at each other being like, what is that? Oh my God. Just like they were horrified by what I was doing. And I panic and I started saying words that I never say, like really like horrible words. And then I just specifically remember it was December in Canada snowing outside. I just walked off and people looked at me like I was walking towards my death and they were happy about it. You know, Mm -hmm. I was walking towards my crucifixion and I walked past everybody and I walked in my t-shirt out of the building, into the snow, out of the comedy club, into the alleyway. And I curled up and I held myself and I cried (laughs) in the snow, in my (laughs) t-shirt. And then I just remember I had, I didn't even drive. I didn't have a car at that time. My friend was driving all of us. We were carpooling. And then after the, I had to wait for the entire whole show to be done. And then they all wanted to go out for drinks and wings after. 
with all the comedians, even the headliners. And everybody went around the table making fun of how bad my act was in front of my face. And these people that I worship, like my idol that saw me sucking, they were just, they were making fun of me. And I just, the fact that I went back again was just a testament to the fact that it's my destiny, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. it was the most traumatic thing ever. I remember, I remember the taste of that snow in my nose. <laughs> and I was crying. The snotty snow that was all over my face. Wow. But if you like, that's a good sign, right? When people yeah. are like, oh, what should I do with my life? Well, are you willing to sacrifice that level of humiliation and keep trying? And like, yeah. that was by far not the only time that I sucked that bad. I remember being in front of an audience, I was so quiet that I could hear somebody say to the person next to them, why are you laughing? They were the only person that was kind of chuckling and they were so offended by the fact that they were laughing at my jokes that I could hear them say it. Oh my gosh. So, but that's like, that's good, right? That's, yeah. that's, having those days make you, they shape you. Right, right. Well, thank you for sharing so much with us today, Andrew. Mm. You know, I really admire you. You're massively talented. And as you were saying, you allow something from the universe to flow through you. And that's your gift. And I'm so grateful that you have that gift. And I'm so grateful that you've never given up on your gift. Because I think in life, a lot of times we do give up on things and just to see you pursue comedy so doggedly. I remember when I first met you, you were like, I'm never doing comedy again. And I remember thinking, oh my God, that's such a shame. <laughs> you should do comedy. Because I saw well, you that. You were one of the you. people that forced me back in. <laughs> I, I did not start emceeing Friday nights because I wanted to, by the way. But that also shaped me. Can I just yeah. say, yes. you, you helped me bring... The, all the pieces back together. You were the, you were the, you like, I don't know, the catalyst of, of so mm -hmm. much of it because I had given up on it. You literally forced, uh, there are a couple occasions. I remember one time there was about 150 to 200 people in the room and you handed me the mic and you said, go up and say something. I said, say what? You're like, I don't know, figure it out. And I was like, oh my God. And they were very serious people. So you just, and you did the exact same thing. You just laughed. Like a maniacal, like, a, like an overlord. And I was like, all right. And I went up there and it was the most nerve wracking thing because I didn't want to offend yeah. anybody, you know. But you just kept on pushing me back. And so that, that really right. helped too. Because that's like, it's not about me. When you're mm -hmm. worried about yourself, everything. Art sucks when you're thinking about yourself. So mm -hmm. you helped me learn to just think about those people in front of me by, you know, covering me in blood and throwing me in a... In a <laughs> Of sharks. <laughs> but hey, it worked, right? <laughs> it worked. It totally did. I got tough skin from those sharks. Yeah. But, you know, just so grateful that you use your gift in the way that you do, that you have a vision for it, and that you use it in high noon, like you said, kind of smoothing over and allowing comfortability to come into difficult conversations. That's so needed. And you know, thank you for all that you do. Really excited to hear more about it tonight. And I um, also want to acknowledge you as a father, Andrew, like what it's like to have a dad as a comedian, a comedian as a dad. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just to kind of, I'm hearing that not only that you ground them, but they also ground you in a way that kind of calls you back into yourself and that they're not, and the worlds aren't separate for you. It's not like you have the, the, the like you're not a comedian here and then not there that you're just Andrew. And I appreciate the cohesiveness of your life, like how how um 
how congruent you are as a person. And um, final question that we like to ask is, what does being wholehearted mean to you? Yeah, it sounds like uh, to hold nothing back, right? Um, so part of my talks that I give are like... Uh, what when you know the highest form of love is when two people can have their minds and their hearts and their spirits and then their bodies all together at once but it's hard to ever have a mind to give to somebody and it's hard to have a heart to give to somebody because we usually are holding something back uh you know and especially you know we're talking about comedy especially with our passion we usually hold something back because we're afraid we're afraid of shining, really shining, because it's scary. Because when you fail, when you try, when you swing for the fences and, <laughs> and, and, and you just fail in front of everybody, it's, it's a miserable feeling. But when you, when you do it enough times, you stop caring about the concept of failure and you just realize that trying is where it's at. And so you, when you do anything with your whole heart, unabashedly, to me, it just means that you're focused on what you're doing and why you're doing it and you're not thinking about yourself and you're not thinking about what could happen or anything. You're just in it. You're in it to win it and you just go all in. And that's, that's really high stakes. And that's why most people don't do it. To love with your whole heart is like to risk it all, to, to, be, to be hurt miserably, to have your heart torn to pieces. If you don't, then you'll never know what it means to fully love. And same with yeah, your talents or anything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for taking the time to be with us on the show. Thank you for Heather and your guys' relationship and like the magic that you guys have created together and just taking the time to share with our audience and share with everybody here your whole journey and to share your time with us. Word. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the Wholehearted Podcast on iTunes or Spotify. You can also check out more on our website, beingwholehearted.com. Thank you, and remember to live wholeheartedly.